What does it look like to walk the line between legalism, thinking that we have to do something to earn God's favor, and antinomianism, thinking that grace frees us from the call to obey? That's a question that Christians have wrestled with and even debated for centuries. In our interview today, I'm talking with Sinclair Ferguson about the Marrow Controversy, a fiery debate in Scotland from hundreds of years ago related to the nature of grace, faith, and what it means to follow Christ. Along the way, we also discuss what we can learn about discussing controversial issues with other Christians, why we should be slower to speak than we often are, and why it's wise to be conscious of how our own psychology often impacts our theology. Sinclair serves as Chancellor's Professor of Systematic Theology at Reformed Theological Seminary and is the author of The Whole Christ from Crossway. Let's get started. Well, Sinclair, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. So your book, The Whole Christ, is is really interesting. I think a lot of people have had this reaction to it because uh, on the one level, it's it's a recounting, it's, it's retelling the story of what is largely a forgotten 18th century debate within Scotland called the Marrow Controversy. And it's related to the relationship between God's grace and our good works. Uh, and yet, on the other hand, the, the book has just had this resonance that kind of goes beyond what you might think it would have, given that that's the topic. Uh, Tim Keller has actually called the book a tract for our times. So I, I wonder if you can just help us think big picture. Why do you think that is? Why is it that this book has resonated with so many people, even though it is on, on, on one level about this kind of very specific historical situation? Yeah, well, in some ways, um, there's a story that lies behind the book, which was I was asked actually over 40 years ago now to give three addresses on uh, an ancient controversy that took place in the church in Scotland. And uh, I remember saying to my wife when I was preparing the addresses, I lived in Scotland, the addresses were given in the United States. I don't know why I'm wasting my time preparing these (laughs) addresses because there's nobody in the world who is interested in this controversy. Um, But I prepared them in a certain way so that it would, I would touch on things I thought were really very important in understanding the Bible, the gospel, the Christian life, pastoral ministry, they were given to ministers. And I found for about 30 years thereafter, basically wherever I went in the United States, somebody would come up to me and tell me they'd been helped by these addresses. Mm. It was, I mean, it was a very serendipitous experience. Um, But I realized then that because I'd focused on what I thought were really important theological pastoral issues, the historical setting was just one of many settings in which the issue of how do we understand the gospel, especially I think when people begin to develop a reformed view of theology, there are big questions related to the nature of God's covenant. Mm. Um, I guess people might say in modern terms, the relationship between the indicatives of the gospel and the imperatives of the gospel. And probably also because 
the the chief figure in my own mind, one of my own favourite Scottish theologians, was a very profoundly theological pastor who ministered absolutely in the boonies. You have to go <laughs> off a main road, drive down a valley, go through trees for miles, and turn right, and you come to the church in which he ministered. Um, I think in some ways it may have resonated unexpectedly with people because this was a ministry in a very ordinary setting. This wasn't a university mm. town. This wasn't a man with a, a mega congregation. Um, uh, uh, but this was the ministry that really touched his congregation. The thing that very much has moved me about him, because I've read about him since I was a young man, was that when he got this sorted out, he said that people began to notice a, a tincture in his ministry. And it's very interesting to me that, uh, you know, a number of ministers have written to me in response to this, say, in, in response to the book, saying either, you know, I hope the tincture, I hope I'm getting the tincture, or people are, I think people are beginning to see the tincture. Um, for for an American for an American context, help us understand that word. Even I think we might have a little bit of yeah, a sense. But what does that okay. mean? Well, if you can, if you can, maybe just put this picture in. Uh, here's a glass of water, and I I drip into it a tincture of lemon, you know, a few drops of it, and it flavors the whole. And this very much, I think, was my hope with the book, as as it was my hope with the original lectures that it wouldn't just be a matter of, as it were, getting your theology right, but it would be a matter of the gospel actually impacting the way you thought about the gospel, and especially the way you thought about Christ and your relationship with him. Hmm. So, that, so that preaching on Christ, maybe the way I would put it now, I'm sure I didn't put it this way in the book, is I think there can be a lot of preaching on Christ that is ideological rather than personal. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's not the idea of Christ that saves us. It's Christ himself mm. and our union with him. Yeah. And that was the big thing I wanted to convey because I thought actually this notion of union with Christ that you know has lingered with me probably since I was 16 or 17 was actually the key to the different problems that were engaging men during what was called the Marrow Controversy. Mm. So, and I want to get into that a little bit. Who, who Tell us a little bit more about what that controversy was actually about and who the, the key players were. But maybe before we even do that, um, had you heard of the Marrow Controversy before... I believe it was a pastor from Indianapolis, even, who, who reached out to you and asked you to come speak? Yeah, the conference, actually the conference was in Indianapolis. The minister was in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Um, and I think he, he was a very far-sighted individual, but I don't, mm. I don't think he could have been as far-sighted in my life as, as he, he actually was. Um, so, um, but the controversy began in a very small Scottish town, essentially during a presbytery meeting where some of the men in the presbytery were trying to weed out legalism. And so in the examination process, they, they asked what was 
in in essence, it was a trick question, mm. um, which was, if I can put it in the vernacular, do you have to leave sin in order to come to Christ? And if you, I mean, it's very interesting to to listen to people's reactions to that question. Um, yes or no, or don't know, or <laughs> there's something maybe not quite right about the way you're asking that question. And that very fact opens up a lot of theological issues. Yeah. Did they intend um, it to be a, a trick question? Well, they intended it to be a trap question. Mm. Um, because if you said, for some of them, if you said, yes, the first thing you've got to do is to leave your sin and then come to Christ they suspected that there was some level of high preparationism and what I would call qualificationism in Mm. that, that there is something you have got to do to be allowed in. Um, And they thought that minimized grace. They were also actually kind of concerned with a form of hyper-Calvinism, so there was legalism, there was hyper-Calvinism, and at the end of the day, the men who led the charge all got accused, accused of antinomianism. Mm. So, so, and define um, that for us. It, so I think we all have a, a better sense for legalism and this the specter yeah, in the yeah. church. We don't want to fall into that, but yeah. what's antinomianism? Antinomianism is, either in theological terms or practical terms, the rejection of the law. Um, and there's a whole spectrum of different kinds of rejection. Um, I suppose the most popular kind is um, you're driving along the road and the guy who's driving you is going at 95 miles an hour and the speed limit is 70 miles an hour and uh, you say to him, excuse me, you're breaking the law. And he says, well, we're not under law, we're under grace. (laughs) So the notion that because we are under grace, we have nothing to do with the law at a practical level. So that could lead to various forms of immorality or at a theological level, which would mean that the gospel would then become constructed in a particular way that when you were talking about how the gospel worked out in people's lives, for all practical purposes, you would never refer back to Exodus chapter 20. Mm. Um, so that would be a, a, another form of, of antinomianism. I think the truth of the matter is, too, that the legalism could vary. Um, it could vary from a, th- a theological legalism that essentially you had to qualify for grace to... Um, and I think this may be what has resonated more with people in the 21st century to a much more subtle form of legalism um, in which you begin to qualify grace either with respect to other people or with respect to yourself. Mm. And um, since one of, my, one of my pretty deep theological convictions is it's all in Genesis chapter 3, um, and I honestly can't remember whether I bring this out in the book. I think I probably did, um, because I'm as much in ruts in my thinking as anybody else. I think you can trace in Genesis chapter 3 this conflict between legalism and antinomianism. 
Hmm. in the way in which the serpent essentially traps Eve and then Adam. Um, and I think, it, I think it was when I was, when I thought about that quite separate from the marrow controversy um, and put the two things together in a way that I don't think the, the leading figures in the marrow controversy did, it really did strike me this is something that goes right down into the very roots of our existence. And it can, it can appear in both either or both forums, but essentially it's rooted in something common. Yeah, because I was going to ask about that. It seems like this struggle that Christians have with uh, walking the line between, or maybe that's the wrong metaphor, but uh, avoiding legalism on one hand and antinomianism on the other hand, it feels like something that continues to come back up in the life of the church. And I was going to ask where you think that comes from, but unpack that connection to Genesis that you, you say you see the seeds of that even back in the garden. Where do you see that? Well, one element of it you see in what God tells you to do isn't actually good for you introduces the notion, both the notions of legalism and antinomianism. It's an incentive to throw out God's specific commandments. And it's also a suggestion that God really wants something more from you hmm. in order that you may have a relationship with him that is pleasing and acceptable to him. And I think it's quite subtle, but I think both elements are there. Um, I, I remember coming across a really very striking comment in the kind of Dutch-American theologian Gerhardus Voss, where he says the, the, the essence of legalism is that you sever the law of God from the person of God and I think one of my concerns, my, um, my life as a minister has been, maybe two-thirds of it has been taken up as a seminary teacher and a third of it as a minister and sometimes a bit of both and sometimes all of both. <laughs> and my area of, um, of teaching has been systematic theology, which I love. But it's also very, become very obvious to me that the big danger in any system type theology is that it becomes depersonalized and ideological mm. and that at the end of the day we confuse uh, an ideological construction of God, Christ, the Father, the Spirit with the actual person of God himself. And that can influences just in terms of how we view the law of God mm. as you know it's there in Exodus 20 and once you got past the first verse it's really just ideas that you've got to um, match up in your own lifestyle and you've lost that sense that the law of God is actually coming out of the covenant bond the personal fellowship that God has created with these people in the Exodus. Mm. Do you feel like you've seen that that tendency or that temptation in your own life, in your own 
doing of theology no, over no, I the never years? Have <laughs> you know, I, I honestly think that that um, you know, at the end of the day, you're either a legalist or an antinomian. Um, huh. You know, uh, you're sick because you're a sinner. Your sin goes back into this fractured relationship with, based on a fractured understanding of who God really is. Mm. And so even the most sanctified of us, which I increasingly know I am not, is going to struggle with this until, you know, until we see the beatific vision and all yeah. of these things disappear out of our lives. Because this is, this is uh, and I think you see this in the New Testament, that these, these rhythms flow through the problems to which the gospel provides the resolution and the solution in the New Testament letters. Mm. Um, so, you know, and everyone Jesus meets turns out either to be a legalist or an antinomian. One of the most striking insights that I feel like you draw out is the fact that both legalism and antinomianism uh, actually even though they might seem like they are the opposite ends of the spectrum, they nevertheless have the same root. You actually call them at one point non-identical twins from the same womb. So unpack that for us a little bit, because I think that gets back to what you're saying here. Yeah, I I came to that kind of formulation um, when I, I just happened to be studying the history of antinomianism many years ago. And so I was reading a number of um, the kind of figures who were known as antinomians in history. Um, I mean, I'm not big on using and categorizing people that way, but the shorthand can be useful. But one of the things that really struck me was that to a man, they, they said essentially they'd become antinomians because they were actually legalists. Hmm. Which seemed to me as much as to say you know that underneath every underneath every antinomian is not an antinomian but a legalist hmm. and that that is the default position of the whole of humanity and this is why you see it in the non-christian religions this is why i think you actually you know there's been this huge debate in the academy about about judaism uh, but you see it running right through Judaism, uh, that there is a reason why God has been gracious to us. And that reason somehow or another lies in us. Mm. It may be because we have been so badly treated that God has had mercy on us. And it sounds as though we're talking about mercy and grace, but that mercy has been uh, diluted by the our our contribution to the situation that has made God gracious. And, you know, when you think about medieval Catholic theology, um, if you think about, um, you think about this in all kinds of ways. Um, so, for example, you know, here, here is a man who goes forward a, a, a crusade in 1961, and he, there's no evidence whatsoever in his life that he is really a Christian. Uh, this is a real story, but when he dies, his his brother shows the minister who takes the funeral service his decision card and says he's all right, isn't he? 
So why is he all right? He's all right because of what he contributed. Mm. That way back there, he put his decision into the treasury of merits, and he he did enough. So like when I was a youngster growing up in Protestant Scotland, if you asked if you asked the average Protestant Presbyterian, did I say it? Um, I, do you think you're going to heaven? The answers would be something like, "I hope I've done enough." Mm, yeah. And this is a this seems to me to be the the Christianized version of what you find in the world religions, mm. where there is a ladder you've got to climb to God. Can you think of any examples from our modern lives today where you've seen, uh, you know, whether legalism or antinomianism sort of infect the purity of our understanding of the gospel, perhaps in subtle ways that we wouldn't, we would never say it like that, but that's still maybe there. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> here, here is what I have begun to feel is one of the, the most subtle ways. Um Insofar as I think of both legalism and antinomianism um, distorting the, the person of God, so it's the person of God and my personal covenant communion with God through my union with Christ is the, the essence. Um, and I can fall into all kinds of legalisms and antinomianisms. So here, here is one, you know, I'm not sure everybody would agree with me, but um, in, I would say in the last 20 years, there's been a huge emphasis in, in our kind of evangelicalism and in the seminaries and in, in all kinds of spheres on the importance of preaching Christ from the Old Testament. So we don't want morality from the Old Testament. We don't want uh, we don't want sermons on David and Goliath that tell us you need to be brave and stand up. You know <laughs> we need to see that this is part of the story of redemptive history. And so, you know, I hear a fair amount of preaching from the Old Testament where you know that the preacher has been schooled to get you to Christ, and he does, and then he stops. Um, and what he has done is by one of ten different ways that he knows you can get there, by one of these ten different ways, he has solved the crossword puzzle of the Old Testament. And then he puts his pencil down because he's preached Christ from the Old Testament. When all he has done is solve the crossword puzzle. And I, you know hungry and thirsty for the Savior. I don't want my crossword puzzles solved. I want mm. Jesus. Well, so um, speak to speak to the pastor listening right now who says, yeah, that's exactly what I do, and that's that's what I'm supposed to do. That's what I want to be doing. Well, what's 
What's wrong with that? Well, you've not preached Christ yet. You, all you've done is, and, and uh, I think to people that can seem very clever that you've done this, but all you've done is trace the dots to the answer without, if you think of the language Paul uses, that Christ, and, you know, how much of the New Testament did Paul have? You know, maybe bits of Luke's gospel, you know, obviously he didn't have, and some of his own letters. Yeah, Uh, right. But he says the Galatians, so this is early in his ministry, Christ, Christ was placarded before you. We preach Christ and him crucified. Him we proclaim. And it's the that it's that focus on the person, not the solution to the Old Testament crossword puzzle, but Christ himself offered to uh, the people. Hmm. And, you know, I think if people say to me, um, you know, how do I learn to preach Christ from the Old Testament? I think I think my response now is the first thing you need to do is to preach Christ from the Gospels. And it's it's kind of fascinating to me that over the years, you know, numbers of preachers have said to me, you know, I find preaching Paul easy, but I find preaching from the Gospels difficult. And I say, I know. And they'll say, well, how do you know? I say, because you <laughs> preach from the Gospels as though Paul had written them. Um, so in that sense, there's a there's a disconnect between the fabric of of Christ presented to us in the gospel. Is that is that mostly due to just the the didactic nature of Paul's teaching, where he's kind of giving us propositions versus the story form of the gospels in the Old Testament, or is it more than that? Yeah, I th- I th- I think it can be more than that. Because, you know, with all the didactic material in Paul's letters, still at the absolute core of it is this, um, this, this big theology for him is always about the person he met on the Damascus Road, or rather who met him on the Damascus Road. You know, what his passion is to know Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings and being made like him in his death and you know, at the end, ultimately be be conformed to him. Um, so when we read Paul, I think we need to we need to keep to keep, as it were, getting under the surface of what he has said to the person with whom he lives in union and communion, about whom he has said this. Um, and in a way, that's, you know, I think for most of us who plod along in our churches, that's where the Gospels come in. And yet, um, I mean, I remember, I remember, um, I don't know if I read, I, I, I tried to find a copy of the book, but I've got it in about five different languages here, but not in English. <laughs> and, and I can't remember whether I said this in, in the book, but I remember sitting under a series of expositions from the Gospels in which the thrust was, where are you in this story? Are you like Nicodemus or Zacchaeus? And, um, and there was never the emphasis, do you see 
Christ in this story. And he is the same today as he was then to Zacchaeus or Nicodemus or whoever. So that in a sense, I think we need to understand that sometimes we are we are turning the New Testament's testimony or we're looking at it from the outside in instead of listening to it from the inside out. Mm. Um, and and we, we can think that we are preaching Christ, but in a way we're just preaching the outline, the theological outline. And therefore, the, um, I think the way I would put it is the people can be well instructed theologically in terms of categories, but not necessarily really well nourished and nurtured by the person of Christ himself and their mm. growth in personal knowledge of Christ and communion with Christ. So I think this whole marrow controversy is, is so fascinating because it, it's a good example of how church history, uh, even history that is hundreds of years in the past, remains relevant for us today. So many of the issues that we wrestle with as Christians in the 21st century are the same, or at least very similar to the issues of Christians in previous generations. So have you found that to be the case in your own life and study and ministry? And if so, are there other examples that kind of immediately come to mind? Yeah. um, You know, I mean, this issue, for example, of legalism and antinomianism kind of blew up in, in the Lutheran Reformation. Um, so there you have an illustration of, of that same uh, issue. Um, I think if you, if you work your way through Calvin's Institutes, for example, it's kind of punctuated by people in controversies that um, if, you, if, you're a, if you're a new reader to the Reformation, you think, who are these guys and what did they do? And I can't even pronounce their names. But you realize that so much of his own growth theologically was related to those different theological issues and debates. And I think if you go back to the New Testament, you can see the same pattern. That if you if you think, let me cut out everything in Paul's letters that's not related to something going wrong in the history of the church. You you don't have all that much left in Paul's letters. (laughs) And even bits of them that you don't think are related to that, you know, the longer you keep your nose in the text, the more you realize that this is actually, um, this is how growth takes place. And, and, you know, when we think about the, 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 dis- the legitimate theological disagreements that we engage in, and then the, the disagreements over real orthodoxy, I think we must always bear in mind for ourselves that this is, this is a context in which I myself am being challenged by God to grow in my understanding of the gospel. So, for example, in, you know, when I've been preaching on a, a book of the Bible, um, I've I've always tried to use at least three commentaries of different kinds. One that will be the latest evangelical commentary, because if you buy that, you probably bought the previous two because the guys had to discuss them. Uh, 
along with that, a great classical commentary. And then along with that, a commentary written by somebody I know I'm going to disagree with on almost mm. every big point. Because he is likely to be a person who will make me think through right down to the roots of the gospel. And I've, you know, I've always found that a helpful thing to do. Mm. So yeah. I think this is just part, you know, an answer to your question, I think it's just part of the existence of the church in the world as a sinful community living in a sinful world um, surrounded by malformed thinking mm. about the world, God, and the gospel. Yeah. Another issue that I found interesting in the book uh, was, as I was reading through the details of this marrow controversy itself, um, as we've already kind of talked about, there are lots of Lots of terms being used, similar terms, same terms. Uh, even there was a agreement uh, from both sides on what the Westminster Confession said about uh, the nature of legalism, or the, the problems with legalism and antinomianism, how we're justified by faith alone. And yet, nevertheless, there were big differences. There was disagreement. And I think someone could read some of that and and think, were they just talking past each other? Were they just sort of emphasizing different things, uh, and that was leading to disagreement. And, and I think that kind of connects even to sometimes critiques that we hear today, uh, both from outside the church, but especially from within the church, where there's um, people will look at different issues that we might be discussing and say, this is just a great example of what Paul warns about in First Timothy and Second Timothy, quarreling over words, arguing, creating division over things, over these these unimportant things that maybe you're you're kind of going too deep in, perhaps. Uh, would you would you agree with that? Is that could this be an example of that, or do you think uh, that that's not what's going on with this particular issue? Well, with you know, with this with the marrow issue, there certainly were um, there were camps. You know, underneath it was the tension between essentially evangelicals and mod and what in Scotland we call moderates. Um, people who signed up to the confession, but their their real interest was in um, the the decent lifestyle. Um, so they signed the confession, but it, it was pretty much held at arm's length. And then this whole controversy began with a book and uh, there were people who didn't have the book, who just, <laughs> and, and it, it's, this is really relevant. They had just read tweets, <laughs> you know? Uh, um, yeah, and they were, then they wrote their review of the book yeah, based on they, those tweets. They'd, they'd seen the, you know, they'd seen something on the website, um, you know, and so they had formed their opinion without carefully reading and reflecting and since we live in an environment now of immediacy, we get caught up in that, I think, without realizing that that is what is happening. What we think we're doing is, you know, cutting edge, speaking to the times, without realizing the extent to which, you know, we, we, we can become intellectually and emotionally fodder for the spirit of this age. Mm while what we think we are doing is advancing the gospel. Hmm. 
And I think one of the things that, you know, has just fascinated me about the Marrow controversy and lots of controversies is that in so many, I mean, I have a mantra in which I say there is no theology without psychology. Because there's no, there's no abstract theology. There's only the theology that, you know, we as individuals work out. And it's always going to be affected by our idiosyncrasies, by our mm. strengths, by our weaknesses. Um, you know, we're subject to that. And that's why we so much need one another. That's why we need to be built together into the temple. And that means some hammering and chiseling. And one of the things that's happened with social media now, for, really for the first time in essentially in history, is that you can get directly to me, your public, without what you are getting to me passing through anybody else's ears or eyes. Hmm. I mean, you think what happens, you know very well, what happens to any manuscript that comes to Crossway you know, it doesn't. They don't just. You don't just throw it to the printer and say, "Print that." <laughs> you know that. By the time it, by the time it's in a reader's hands, presumably the author has read it at least twice. The editor has worked through it. Somebody else has worked through it. For all I know, a whole committee of people have worked through it. And so, as an individual, um, however irritating editors may be to authors, the individual author has the strength of the community around him. Mm, In that yeah. sense, the strength of the fellowship of the church. Um, and it's, it's, it's kind of paradoxical that I, you know, I could bang on from the pulpit to my congregation how much we need one another. But when I get down to my keyboard and my, you know, my blogs or whatever it is I do, I really act as though I don't need anybody else. Mm, yeah. And and I can act as though the world is just waiting for me to hear about every single issue. Um, and that, I think, I mean, I, I think I can see that in the New Testament too. That's the kind of thing that promotes the tensions, the arguments, the building of kingdoms, the creation of tribes, um, and now our kingdoms and our tribes have become so financially dependent in one way or another, or numbers dependent, or followers dependent. That, um, you know, as a non-tweeter and a non-blogger, <laughs> and usually a non-podcaster as well, um, you know, I mean, it's it, it, these tools are wonderful tools. You know, I mean, they really are. Think about this last year when we've had all these tools yeah. and the mercy of God in his creation. He built into the creation the, the stuff out of which this kind of thing could be done. Hmm. But we also need to be very observant of our own psychology in it as well. And that goes back to, you know, it goes back to the marrow controversy and what we are in our hearts and how we're related to Christ and how we think of our brothers and sisters. That, that's such a helpfully uh, humbling reminder that, yeah, our psychology inevitably always, even without our intentionally doing it, is going to impact how we do theology, how we think about those things. And that should should keep us humble. I, I wonder if you could speak to those who are listening who who 
are on social media, do have blogs, do have podcasts. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe some of them shouldn't, but but many do, and and are wanting to engage on this stuff. It, it sounds like I'm hearing you say it's not. There's actually value in theological disagreement and discussion. We we want to sharpen each other. We want to help each other uh, to think a little bit better. But the way that we actually carry out that disagreement today is in some ways similar to how it was back even with the Marrow controversy 300 years ago. We don't, we don't always understand the issue fully. We don't always read each other, listen to each other fully, and yet we jump in. What advice then would you give to a modern Christian, maybe even a modern pastor, on these issues, how to deal with theological disagreement in our world today? Well, um, I think the first thing to do is um, not to jump to conclusions. Um, I, th- I think this is probably true in Scotland now, in a way it was never true. When, when I was at school, nobody was interested in any opinions I had. <laughs> you know, if, if, <laughs> I was not educated to have opinions of my own until I'd been educated. <laughs> and um, I actually find oral communication much more difficult than writing because I basically hardly ever spoke throughout mm. my whole education. But I wrote a lot because that's how, how we communicated. But, you know, my my sense of living in the United States is the extent to which having opinions and being able to express them is very highly regarded. Yeah. And I think by contrast with that, you know, one of my, the greatest theologian, living theologian who influenced me was Professor John Murray. And if Professor Murray was asked a question, um, he he might answer it in three days' time. Um, you know, it wasn't because he was brought up in the north of Scotland and it was cold and his brain worked slowly. It was he wanted to consider it from all the angles. Mm. Another thing that I think is really important in, in, in any discussion of disputed matters is this. Um, and if I can take a historical illustration of this, this was a principle that John Owen, the great uh, Puritan, had, um, and I know he's of interest to Crossway these days. That's um, right. If he if he felt he was in disagreement with another position, what he did was he looked for the best and the strongest possible exposition of that position in order to consider it. And the danger, I mean, it's a natural danger, especially in a society where we're encouraged to have our own opinions and where there's a possibility of spreading them very quickly. That's usually not done. And, and it seems to me there's a lot of triumphalism because I've cut somebody's head off yeah. when actually they've been the poorest and the weakest expression of the position. How much of that is due to the fact that we often, especially in online discourse, if you want to call it that, we're not we're not trying to persuade anybody. We're just sort of playing to the the echo chamber that we're a part of already. We're looking to score points with our own team, as opposed to actually convince anyone else. Yeah, um, 
I mean, if you think about it, all exposition of the word is, is as they used to say in my tradition, ministerial. Um, I, I've been very, I mean, it might not appear so <laughs> in my life in ministry, but I've been tremendously impacted by Paul saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, we don't preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. Mm. And I don't remember when this struck me, but one day it struck me, these two statements don't really belong together in the same sentence. We don't preach ourselves, we preach him. Oh, and by the way, there's ourselves, your servants. And it, it's kind of formulated in this way in my mind that all ministry, which is every expression of the gospel, all ministry needs to be exercised on our knees. Um, and I, th I th again, I'm back to dispositions that the gospel creates so that this the gospel formulates the style in which I, I do everything, theology, ministry, controversy, polemics. At the end of the day, it needs to be done as someone who is a servant of Christ and also a servant of the person. Um, and I mean, here's a, in a way a picture of that uh, again has impacted me greatly. If you read John 13, it's fairly obvious that Jesus knelt down before Judas Iscariot and washed his feet. Hmm. Um, now, you know, don't ask me to unpack that, but it's such a picture. You know, here is somebody, you know, who's in my crosshairs and I am after him. Yeah. But am I on my knees seeking to wash his feet or wash his brain with the word and with mm, the spirit? Yeah. Um, and it, it, I think it's that dispositional thing that um, we... We, we're either in danger of never having it or, or losing it mm. because it's not easily won in our lives, I don't think. Um, you, you know, I mean, you get to my age uh, and, and you look back and you think, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Mm. Um, and, I, you know, I often think, because, you know, occasionally I'm asked to speak at seminary graduations and I think, I wish I was sitting where they're sitting. <laughs> but then I think, Ferguson, what you're really saying is you wish you were sitting where they're sitting, knowing what you know now. Mm, yeah. And it can't be any other way. Yeah. As, yeah. You know, my mum used to say to me when I was seven, saying, well, there's no substitute for experience. It used to infuriate me. There's <laughs> an unjust universe yeah. where she's telling me there's no substitute for experience, and I, I don't have any. Um, but that's the way God has made us, mm. you know, yeah, to grow. Yeah. Uh, just as he made the Lord Jesus to grow, you know, end of Luke chapter 2, growing in stature, but also in wisdom and favour with God. Yeah. So it's a, um, whatever the marrow was about, it's a lifelong business. Mm. Letting the gospel, being porous to the gospel. Yeah. So that it, it then comes out of your pores and, and there's the tincture in your ministry. Well, Sinclair, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to walk us through this 
this ancient controversy that nevertheless has so much relevance, so much to teach us even today. Thank you, Matt. That was Sinclair Ferguson. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, The Whole Christ, Legalism, Antinomianism, and Gospel Assurance, Why the Marrow Controversy Still Matters. Available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.